Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of the Point of Everything podcast. I think that deserves an exclamation mark after it. Episode number 50. I'm I'm as surprised as you are that we made it here today. And a really special episode as well to kind of mark number 50. And this is kind of, uh, it was it's kind of coincidental. I was asked to um, chair a panel at Waterstones on Thursday, March 2nd for World Book Day between two of my favourite writers, uh, Dirni Grifa and Sarah Baum. And yeah, I, I just decided oh, I'll bring my little Zoom, which I record all my podcasts on. I'll bring that with me and yeah, maybe maybe I'll be able to do something with it. And I almost forgot to press record. I just kind of lobbed it on the table in front of me and uh, pressed record. So you might hear a, a few uh, kind of glasses being put down on the table. You might hear um, a few bottles being opened, bottles of water. No, no bottles of wine were consumed in the making of this podcast. And yeah, it was a really enjoyable 45 minutes. It was recorded in front of a live studio audience, uh, which I didn't really have much to do with. It was quite ad hoc as well. I wasn't really sure how long to um, how long the interview was supposed to go for. I think it went for about 45 minutes, including a, a Q&A with um, a couple of people in the audience asking questions. And yeah, it's my first time recording or doing an interview in public and I suppose recording it as well. And it was a really nice experience. I'd love to do it again. And I think that I was so lucky that I was able to do it with two of, yeah, two of my favorite writers, as I said. Uh, thanks a million to Tramp Press, who have put out Sarah Baum's book. You've probably heard of them if you pay any attention to uh, the book world. They they released her first book, Spill Simmer Falter, with her uh, two years ago. And her new book, A Line Made by Walking, is Tramp's 10th book. And last year, they put out one of the books of the year, Solar Bones by Mike McCormick. And Tramp Press is like their authors are just kind of gobbling up awards at the moment. Just a week or two ago, it was announced that Sarah Baum's um, Spill Simmer Falter with her. Uh, made the shortlist for the Arts Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction at the LA Times Book Prize, which is incredible. And she just has so many more awards. You've probably heard her name um, being bandied about in literary circles. She's one of, uh, yeah, she's one of my favourite writers, uh, Irish or international. Uh, Spill some Revolta with her, I reread it um, on the week that I was doing the interview. I read that and I read her new book, as well, and it's the first time I think that I've actually reread books, and they're just so great. I think A Line Made by Walking is the best book that I've read so far this year, and I'm not just saying that because I got the chance to interview her. Dirna Griefa, meanwhile, um, has is a bilingual poet, uh, a bilingual writer, uh, Irish and English, as the name might suggest, and she's just released a new book called Ire, which I mispronounced on the night as Iher. And I asked her and she had to clarify and it was in front of people and it wasn't my best moment. My intro was actually really bad on the night I felt. Um, and this one is starting to meander. So, yeah, you might have come across, you've probably come across Darren's work as well. Uh, she kind of does a lot of collaborations and, you know, kind of cross-disciplinary ones as well. I think that she was talking that she might be working with uh yeah, she might just be doing some exciting stuff. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it yet. Uh, so Sarah actually won the um, Rooney Prize for Irish Literature in 2015 and Duran won it in 2016. So yeah, they're just really acclaimed writers and just being able to 
uh, interview them for 30 or 40 minutes was an absolute treat for me and it's a nice way to mark episode number 50 of the podcast so thanks a million to Steve McAvoy who produces all this podcast so I almost I, I sent him the audio and I was like if you can do anything with this please please do so this is me interviewing Dirni Grifa and Sarah Baum at Waterstones thanks to Waterstones thanks to Tramp Press and if yeah if you haven't read their books, go out and buy them now. So I'll, I'll let you recover first, Sarah, from reading. Um, Darren, you read a, a prose piece there. Is is that something that you're looking to get kind of more into? Like, I mean, do you want to be known as like the poet during Agrifa or is it like the writer during Agrifa is kind of what you want to be known as? Um, I think the form that we write in is quite malleable for me anyway. Um, like due to the circumstances in which the writer that I am is based at the moment the form of poetry is um more suited to it I suppose because I'm working around a lot of other responsibilities at the age that I'm at you know and um so the little islands of time that I have to work in are very small and so poetry suits that but um, there's times where I want to explore an idea that demands a different type of form. Um, and then I tend to kind of look towards prose. But that wouldn't be unusual at all among poets, you know. Like, I mean, they would kind of flit back and forth, many people anyway, among different forms. So, um, yeah, I, I do every now and then dabble in the dark arts of prose. <laughs> I think I think the only thing you can't get away with as a writer is to go from prose to poetry. People rarely do that. <laughs> do they? Examples? Um, Sarah, uh, congrats on the new book. Uh, I feel like almost every day I'm coming across like a new review of it, and it seems like it's getting really well reviewed. And uh, no. Um, <laughs> that's because I, I don't see any of the good stuff you know all I see is the one like horrible thing that just burns <laughs> in my memory <laughs> uh, well, I, I liked um, at the start of your reading you said each chapter is kind of divided up into um, it's kind of named after an animal and so I don't know how many people have actually read the book but it's it's kind of like not a novel in a way it's a novel that isn't a novel it's like divided into chapters which are named after um, animals. The animals are all dead and they've all had photographs taken of them by Sarah. And then throughout the book, as, as the kind of story of Frankie progresses, as she's kind of trying to find herself again, I guess, uh, you have about 70 of these pieces, these works about, um, hap or, well, not happiness, I don't think, works about- Everything but happiness. Everything but happiness, yeah. Um, how how did the actual novel come about? Like, what did you have first? Did you have the photos of the dead animals? And what made you decide to put that in? And where did the the works of art and describing them come into it? And then when did the story kind of come as well? Um, it actually started as uh, the year I did a master's in uh, Trinity in TCD in the Oscar Wilde Centre in 2009-2010 and there was a module in that that was creative non-fiction was the name of it which at the time was kind of even something quite new mm -hmm. um, but it's very popular now and um, so I wrote a kind of memoir-esque piece it was only about 5,000 words but it was it was essentially a very early draft of, of, of the novel um, but it was it was absolutely 
well, it was absolutely, I don't think it was absolutely true. I remember thinking, oh, I'll spend the truth a bit here because it makes a better story. Um, so that had the, that was structured around the animal photographs, um, probably only about five of them. Um, and, and it was also interspersed. I think every section also started with a quote from, um, from a writer. So it was, it was about this period of time that I spent living in my grandmother's house after she died and when it was on the market. And um, I do remember that there were an awful lot of books in the house. Um, and most of the ones that had been left behind were the, the valueless ones. And there were lots of the orange little paperbacks, you know, the orange paper covered from the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s, probably. Um, so I was reading those books and most of the quotes that got interspersed throughout the essay were from, from those books. I was reading like Camus and there were loads of Saul Bellows, loads of V.S. Naipaul. Um, and they came from that. And then... Uh, then I suppose years passed and Spill Simmer became my first novel even though this this one had existed in some form beforehand and when it came to when I realized that that was kind of the one that that was demanding to be written in a way that I could felt that I could sustain interest in for the time it takes to finish a novel um I I switched I, I cut out all the the literary references because I didn't want to sound pretentious to be honest <laughs> I thought there's a um, a, a well-placed epigraph, it's lovely, but I thought it was too much with them. So that was where the artworks came in, and I thought, I, and I've spoken about this a lot with Phil Simmer, and that, you know, I do events and I always feel under pressure um, to sound literary, maybe feel this too, but like I never studied literature. Um, I'm just a reader, so, I, and no one ever asked me about conceptual art influences, you know, which is essentially what I think influenced me a lot more. So I thought, this is my opportunity to use, to use artworks in a piece of writing. And um, and the animal photographs were they've existed. I I don't think of them as art because they're not good at all. Um, but they're more they were an exercise in collecting. I I had maybe two or three, and then I was like, oh. Then it got so like, oh, hedgehog. I have to have to get a picture of that, um, um, and so on and so forth. Through it's probably about twelve or fifteen, and then there's ten ten in the in the book. Um, so so they kind of came together naturally, I suppose. Um, I, I was trying to uh, describe the book to a friend and I was just showing him and he saw the dead animals and he was like, what? What is going on here? <laughs> like, did, uh, it, did it sell it? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was kind of like, he put it down, closed it quite quickly, put it down. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, is, is art something... I mean, you said that uh, nobody asks you about your art uh, influences. It's it's named after a piece of artwork, a line made by walking, and it's uh, the I can't think of the artist's name. Richard Gray. Richard Long. Richard Long. Um, he walks like up and down in a line and just creates this own line, and then he and then the protagonist in the book says that he just kind of leaves it there, and so the book is kind of about the artist's journey and kind of feeling, or you know, trying to be, trying to achieve greatness, or trying to achieve, you know. Anything. being an artist yeah is that like how close to home is it how personal or how real is it um yeah well i mean very i loads of details were obscured like i say when i realized it was going to be a novel as opposed to a a, a piece of memoir um that was really liberating because of course you can make lots of stuff up um and so you know a, a lot of uh, but i mean essentially at the core is is this sort of traumatized not traumatized this very troubled a former art student and um, and that was definitely a version of me at 25 and um, one of the greatest difficulties in rewriting it sort of in my 30s was um, uh, much of what was cut out was sort of just 
things that really annoyed me about the character that, you know, it was kind of me going, oh, grow up, you're so immature, you know. I wouldn't say that, but, you know, I'd, I'd, and I wouldn't say that now, perhaps, or I wouldn't feel that way now. I'd have a more um, more balanced view on things, but I had to kind of say, okay, well, she's she's not me. She's a version of me at 25, and that's, um, um, you know, and that's that's how, you know, you really feel that, she, or she feels very much that she's the centre of the universe and that she's failed at everything in life, you know, everything she set out to do and wanted to be, um, whereas in fact she just sort of wants to shake her and go, but you're 25, you know, <laughs> there's still there's still lots to come. Um, so, and I mean, definitely that's, it, it's drawn from the, the angst of uh, the quarter-life crisis, which is now a thing, um, apparently. Um, and I think it stems from sort of, I suppose, growing up with unrealistic ex expectations, being very highly educated and then graduating into the recession at which there was no, everyone was highly educated. And uh, my, my eclectic arts education was, uh, was completely useless. So, um, so yeah, no, there's an awful lot of me in it, but yeah, a younger me. <laughs> I was actually just reading it and I was just like, I want to ask her, is this real? Is this real? Is this real? <laughs> all the little bits, I was like, how truthful is it? Um, Darren, you came to writing quite late, um, it, well, I mean, late, um, in 2009. Um, is, like, can you understand, like, that idea of, you know, youth equals greatness? I think it's actually something you were talking about on Twitter today that I wanted to ask you about. You are uh, talking about supporting um, younger Irish poets, younger Irish female poets, and uh, just the older poets then, you know, it's it's not a rivalry, but you were kind of making some great points there, and first of all, is age something that, like, equals greatness? Does youth equal greatness, or is there, like, that's not really a thing? I kind of feel like passing the mic out to the audience, because I feel like the audience probably have much better ideas than I would on this. Um, I feel like with um, becoming a writer, there's a sense of... <coughs> becoming and there's a sense of apprenticeship when you commit yourself to it whether you go the MA, MFA route or whether you, like, you teach yourself what you want to do by reading and by engaging with work which is what happened to me and I was up last week in Dublin um, giving a guest lecture to the class that you would have been in a few years ago and thinking like what am I doing here you know I have no qualification to talk to <laughs> but um, like I think the thing is that people have this realisation that they want to become writers or that they are writers at different times in their life and I don't see any benefit in pitting people against each other in saying like, oh, you know, the young poets are getting all the attention because, you know, I don't know. I don't even know where that line ends up. All I know is that people emerge at different stages in their lives and they deserve the support and encouragement and the readership of their fellow writers. Because the sense of vision is so important when you're starting to define yourself as a writer, of being seen for, for what you feel you are, you know? Of someone else, of one of your peers or of an older writer speaking to you, you know, at the, at the level that you want, of seeing you and, and like, I remember so clearly when I was starting out, I would go to so many events like this spend the whole time working up my courage to just say hi to someone now like Paula Meehan say several times came to talk in the city library and I'd go over afterwards and she was always so gracious so kind she'd remember you like which I found astounding and that sense of seeing you for who you are even though you've only been writing for two years you know 
and recognizing who you are as a writer and I feel that that is I feel a real sense of kind of like a duty of care to young writers or older writers but people who are in their infancy as as artists coming to writing to help them and encourage them in some way you know we're all in it together like I do genuinely feel that and um, it's a big responsibility but it's just part of our work I think encouraging because not everyone can afford to go to college to have a professor tell you every day you know well address you every day as a writer and expect you to produce a piece of writing you know people are fitting it around lives at home other responsibilities aging parents people are fitting it around work and there's a great sense of just speaking to someone as as they are as writers you know and it it is important you never know the influence you're going to have on someone else you know and that goes for anything that goes for standing at a bus stop and talking to someone beside you in the queue you don't know how important that interaction is in their lives. Anyway, sorry, I think I might have gone on a tangent there. <laughs> I think um, it just made me think of like generally our, our, our friendship is always, um, I'm always slightly jealous of Darren because she has a really busy like, like lots of like, interesting active things going on outside of like, <laughs> like kids and bus stops. And, um, whereas, uh, whereas I think Darren is probably slightly jealous of my just have barely anything to do and sort of just right. <laughs> That we're constantly trying to sort of justify this. No, that's the way to do it. That's the better way to do it. No, no, that's the better way to do it. And like the truth is that there's, you know, there's mm. there's no way. Different ways work yeah. work for everyone. And what actually, um, I, I the first conversation we ever had was when we were on this panel together. We were both talking about our processes, and our processes are actually very similar. Mm. Um, even though they come out in completely different forms, it's just sort of snatching whatever you can from the world all the time, mm. um, and then eventually patchworking it together into some form of, of writing whether it's poetry or prose or whatever so yeah can I, can I just <laughs> I, that actually that event I want to give a, a quick shout out to the Penny Dreadful because it was them that organized, that organized that, the event <laughs> a fantastic literary journal based in Cork who have had the work both of me and Sarah as well published yeah 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 so they're brilliant and they're probably copies of it for sale here if there aren't there <laughs> buy all these books and buy the Penny Dreadful if you, if you can <laughs> Are, are, are literary journals like more important, well, yeah, more important now than what they would have been like 10 years ago? Because there's so many people writing, you know, it, it can almost seem like a, a kind of white noise. Everybody kind of is writing. You can self-publish and, you know, you can just put something up on the internet. Whereas like literary journals do kind of have a certain standard that you might hit. Is Were, were they kind of key in both of your development? Do you want to go first, Sarah? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're dead right. There's so many people writing now, um, especially Irish people. <laughs> um, the, the journals are kind of a good CV before you send something out to agents or publishers. Um, and I went down that route. I was first published by The Stinging Fly. I think the first thing I had, first story I had published while I was um, still in college. And then there was, there was, sort of, you know, there was about a five-year gap between that and the book actually being published and what kept my spirits up throughout a time was submitting to journals um like the penny dreadful like the moth the stinging fly um god i'm trying to think there's there's a lot of them knocking around a lot of them that i've had pieces in um yeah, they're quite they're anyway, um, <laughs> um so yeah no no i think that's but it's not essential either like you know i know of writers that have just turned up with a wonderful finished manuscript you know um, at the end of the day if you don't have a wonderful finished manuscript you know it doesn't it, no one will pick it up anyway but definitely those things you're more likely to 
um, as I say, just like a CV, you know. It's, mm, it's poetry. It is like that with poetry as well, the sense of building up a CV and publishers getting to see your work. Um, and particularly with ones like The Sting and Fly, where having your work there is important as part of a CV. And there's been kind of an explosion in literary journals here, which is to all of our benefit, I feel, in the past <coughs> few years. There's been some very exciting ones like Gorse that have come around and like Banshee, which is absolutely brilliant and run by three very talented women. Um, I feel we're very lucky as writers to have so many quality like outlets or places to send your work to. I was talking to Declan recently from The Sting of Fly about this and the thoughts that like not that long ago there weren't really that many places to send your work. Like if you had a short story, like where are you going to send it? You know, a few years ago, Sting Flight, the Irish Times or, you know, with the Dublin Review, there was very few outlets at a certain point and we're, we've been very lucky with the explosion. I suppose supply and demand as well, you know, um, in terms of the amount of writers, like you were saying, Owen, you know, there's so many writers, um, places they're going to spring up to publish their work. But, um, yeah, it's, it is important. It's an important step. And I always encourage young writers to send and um, emerging writers to send their work to literary journals because it can be a real boost as well. Yeah, Seeing yeah, your work in print, it's so important. And, and it's reading them as well. Yes. Uh, you know, for a yeah. long time, it was my it was how you know what else, what other people are writing and what the standard is kind of mm. thing. You get an idea of where you are, whether you're any good or not. Um, so, you know, it's, it's as important to read them as to yeah. submit to them. Yeah, can I say that? Thanks. Um, and on that note, I think um, it's a lovely little joy as a writer when you have a subscription to a journal <laughs> and it comes in the post box. Like, it's such a little buzz, like, and you just sit down and have a cup of tea and, and read work and, and it can just electrify you into writing something new as well. So we're very lucky with the literary journals here. Um, as, as well as the explosion in literary journals is also, I, I don't know, it feels like there's been a bit of an explosion in um, literary awards as well. And I know that you two have uh, received an absolute slew of awards. Does, is, is it kind of always a boost to, like, to see that you're kind of on the right path sort of thing? Do you, is it something that you kind of think about that you feel pressure about. I mean, you both won the um, the Rooney Prize, uh, awarded for a body of work by a young Irish writer who shows exceptional promise. Um, that feels like it'd be something that would have a lot of pressure on your shoulders as well for like the thing that you're writing at the moment or the thing that you're thinking about writing next. Do you want to take that first? Well, I, th I don't think anyone thinks about that when they're reading the books, really. No. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's... It's 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 pressure because it, you're so you know one is underwhelmed. It's kind of like if this one doesn't win the Booker, then it's no, you know it's and that's ridiculous. Uh, as in, I think there's lots of really wonderful writers out there who, for some reason, kind of get passed over. Like there's a weird thing with awards that it's kind of like you're in the vocabulary of people who win awards or you're not, and that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on your work. Mm. So I think they're kind of problematic. I mean, they're wonderful if you win them, but then <laughs> if you don't win them, then they're, you know, they're not important. It's, it's, you know, it's, I don't, how do you feel about awards? <laughs> I don't know. Like, that sounds really ungrateful. I don't mean to sound ungrateful. No, it's it, like, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth in that, I think, as well. Like, it can give you a boost, particularly if you're at a low ebb. The sense, again, like I was saying, of, of being seen. Because the people who judge these things generally are, like, your, in my case anyway, like your literary idols. So you're kind of shaking your head for the months where you're supposed to keep it quiet. <laughs> I actually... 
when I, I, I was supposed to keep it quiet for like five months that I had won the Rooney Prize and I told Sarah here actually and Dave <laughs> outside I was like oh, I have to tell you this and Dave goes what you're pregnant again <laughs> but <laughs> everyone breathed a sigh of relief I think a fifth child would just push me right over the brink but um, yeah it was it was great and I was really lucky when I won it because it was the 40th anniversary so like Sarah was there with me for it and I got to meet so many of the other people who won it over the 40 years you know so I spent the whole time just going around with my jaw on the floor you know really in awe of all the people that were there and I don't ever feel it as a sense of pressure for what I'm going to produce next. Mostly because no one reads poetry. <laughs> so, like, very few of us anyway. So, like, I mean, I could produce any old shite, you know? And no one would know. <laughs> no one's going to read it. Um, you can prove me wrong by all buying my book after it. But um, it is a boost. Ad is a boost, you know? And particularly when you're writing in, in, in Irish like I do, and when you're writing poetry as well, you know, no one had one... No poet had won the Rooney Prize for Irish Literature since Leanna Sullivan. There was six years. It was six years since a poet had gotten it. And there was only one case of Irish language writer getting it. And that was an honorary prize um, that year. So, like, I mean, it was a big deal for me. And it's rare, rarer maybe for me to get prizes. So, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> Here, I'm, I'm, I'm up for Sandy. I'm grateful now. The thing is, like, I I did very well, very quickly, and that's slightly worrying in a sense because, you know, you 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 don't want to believe the hype either. You know, people tell you you're wonderful for long enough, you'll believe it and stop trying. So you know, that's um, I don't I don't know. Not in our see, case, I got I it for a one off. You got it for like a body. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have a round of like my award <laughs> that's deserving than your award. <laughs> um, but yeah, and essentially they're not they're not the most important thing either. Mm. You know, it's don't be discouraged if you never win one. Yeah. Um, you did win the Rooney Prize in twenty fifteen. Um, about like eight months or so after Spill Summer Fall to Wither, like saying that it was a one off. I mean, it's had unbelievable success. I mean, just being. Um, nominated for the LA Times Prize last week, I think it was announced. Um, how do you feel looking back on it now? Do you like? Why does everybody like this book? You know, it's about this this man who goes, this old man who's living on his own, and he goes around with his one-eyed dog. Why? Why is this getting so much success? I I do think it's great, despite that description. <laughs> why? Why? Actually, um, our reaction to it because the. The book was very much based on my own dog. Like I really don't think the book would have ever been based or ever been written had not the dog just um, been taking up a lot of my like mental space. And I was like, maybe I should turn this into a into a book. And the dog is still going strong. So our, our reaction to any form of good news is uh, and the dog is called Wink because he only has one eye. Uh, we go, good boy, Wink. <laughs> And uh, and then just sort of dispel it. So you're like, look, look, L.A. Good boy. And it's it's kind of grinding because the dog has absolutely no clue. You know, <laughs> he's completely oblivious to his world famousness. He just wants a biscuit. <laughs> um, and and are there similarities between uh, the two protagonists of your book, Ray and Spill Simmer Falter Wither and Frankie? There, I mean, they're. 20 something years apart but it seems a lot of the time that there are similarities to them they're both quite lonely i suppose 
And I think I saw in an interview that you said, you know, there's there is actually a lot of me and Frankie that I don't really want to, or in uh, in Ray that I don't want to admit. Um, do, do you see that as well with with Frankie too? That there is a lot in there, and there are a lot of similarities between them. Um, yeah, in, interestingly, much. Uh, no one asked me the question so much with Ray, you know, no one goes, hey, this is you, this is definitely a version of you, um, because he was a man in his late 50s, but so much of him was me, um, just from, the, you know, the things that interested him or illuminated him or the, you know, his small worries and fears and um, the landscape that, you know, so many of the details of, of an intricacies of his life and of his feelings were in fact mine at the time, but no one quite made this the analogy in the same way and I mean Frankie is very much a version of me as well and much more obviously so because I guess I've I've drawn more directly from from details of my past um but and and so in that sense of course they're similar because they're both versions of me and again I've returned to loneliness I just find lonely lonely people and loneliness um a much more sort of interesting sort of deep um subject to write about um than sort of characters and dialogue so um, so yeah, and inevitably they're they're very similar. Um, and and in all of the reviews that uh, a line made by walking has been getting, um, I've seen a couple would say that it's a plotless book, and I don't know. I take that kind of as a criticism because I'm reading it and I'm like, it's about loads of things. It's about loneliness. It's about art. It's about at dead animals, you know, and lots of other things. Um, do you do you understand do you, do you understand the idea of the plotlessness? Um, yeah, yeah, to me it's sort of plotless as well, yeah. probably. Um, but then I thought Spurs Summer was sort of plotless too, um, and and not so. Um, it's it's funny because I, I wrote Spurs Summer in, you know, like like I was saying, in, in little scribbles, you know, in, in passages in notebooks, and then stitched it together um, towards the end, and it was a headwreck of a way to, to write a novel because it was like building a Jenga block, and then when you go back to push out a little block, everything wobbles. Um, and you have to push out lots of little blocks in the process of editing, you know. And I swore I'd never write another book like that. And then I just ended up writing, uh, writing line in exactly the same way. It just seems to be how I work. Um, so to me, it's always remarkable that when when it gets put together, there is some, you know, that people can see see the line of thought that goes through it, you know, without me sort of heavily stating it. Um, I think there's definitely um, a line. <laughs> apt um, without realizing but yeah so I think you know that one should be able to make the connections that Frankie's mind makes um, and follow her through this sort of strange bleak summer um, without without there being you know this happened and then that happened and then that happened hopefully um, was it also nice to be able to write so much about art as well like uh, over 70 kind of pieces of art are mentioned and you say that um you know, at the end of the book, in the author's note, you say that these are Frankie's uh, um, interpretations of the artwork. Um, is is it just nice to be you kind of like nudging the reader as well? Like, look at all the art that's out there. You know, go go to a gallery, go go see some art. Um, yeah, a little bit actually. Um, I I tried really hard to make uh, to have them. The, the artworks are described as Frankie perceives them. You know, so they're not. And I have in a author's note at the end, I sort of state that these are not, these are as interpreted by the narrator and not necessarily how the artist wanted them to be interpreted. Um, which, even though I think when you make visual art, you have to be, you know, you have to be ready for the fact that people are going to um, 
going to perceive it in, in myriad different ways. Um, so yeah, no, I wanted, I, I guess I wanted to show people conceptual art and kind of say, look, this is really relevant to, to ordinary life, to, to normal feelings. You know, it looks obscure and it's so easy to dismiss in a gallery, but it's actually, you know, layered with, with relevance and with meaning. Mm. Um, in a, in a way, and I kind of urge people to go, and absolutely no obligation to do this, but to go and look at the works for themselves, to, to, to figure them out for themselves, because Frankie could be completely wrong, I could be completely wrong. Um. Um, Dearne, it's, it's funny how, I don't know, you seem very self-deprecating about the poetry, you know, and, and the kind of the audience it's for true. the poetry. It's true. It's true. <laughs> um, like, I, I was just thinking in the past year, um, like, Sarah Griffin had her, uh, her poem, We Face the Land, This Land, um, kind of soundtrack a Repeal the Eighth video that was mm. phenomenally successful. And just last week, I think it was, um, My Ireland by Stephen James Smith, which was kind of commissioned for um, St. Patrick's Festival. It went online on YouTube and it's got, like, almost 50,000 views yeah. now. I'm just wondering, like, is, is the form of poetry kind of changing a little bit people are kind of experimenting with like these kind of powerful themes and putting them on youtube like is that kind of maybe the future of poetry like that's how maybe i don't know it gets more popular just watching the reaction of my pals in poetry at the back of the room there <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. um no it's, <coughs> like there are so many like any type of literature i think um it's tricky to see from the outside but there are different branches within poetry um there'd be more experimental type just to be very like broad strokes rather but there'd be more experimental type of poetry um more kind of pagey type poetry more performance poetry and with those two examples like i mean it's more exploring poetry as an oral art, something that you perceive hourly, or in that case with visuals as well. And um, the experience and the kind of um, goosebumpiness of it um, functions very differently if you see it written down on the page. Um, and so those two pieces um, each work on their own terms, say, but when you're saying is that the future of poetry, like I don't think poetry's in any danger there's always going to be us gang of weirdos writing poetry you know like I mean it'll always be the same you know we've always been here and we'll always be here and there's always different ways for to try and disseminate a poem and, and get it out in the world to greater or lesser successes I suppose and YouTube is brilliant like YouTube is great to get especially that kind of work out and um it's great to see young writers doing well like that and getting a message out there. I, th I thought the message in Sarah's piece was very clear and um, very important politically. Stephen's piece was kind of Dublin is great. I don't know if we all agree with that. But, um, you know, it's horses for courses. Some people love that stuff, you know, they really love that. Um, I write a different kind of poetry. And um, I love watching that kind of thing or listening to it. And, um, you know, it gives me a certain buzz, but not to the same extent that, um, yeah, I'm not going to use more, any adjectives there, but not to the same extent that it, it maybe other poetries would have, you know, that effect on me. There are other poetries that I would tend more towards than that kind of thing. But it's great to see people doing so well with it. 
fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wasn't trying to throw you to the wolves there or anything like that, you know. Um, the Ire is dedicated to Catelyn uh, Maud, um, mm. and there's a new uh, a new collection of poetry called uh, Washing Windows, which is about uh, it's a it's an anthology of about a um, hundred a hundred Irish uh, women writing poetry, um, and it's dedicated to even Boland. Mm. Do you feel very much that you're kind of following in the lineage of these poets? I do. Yeah, I do. I definitely do. I have a sense, a very strong sense <coughs> of um, women in literature and women in poetry and Irish women in poetry and the sense of um, being handed something, you know, and taking it and, and valuing it in your life. So, yeah, I do, you know, not in a conceited way of ever thinking like, you know, I'm as as strong a writer as they were. But in the sense of being the same type of person who will sit in a corner of a room and write a poem when I could be like out walking, you know, on a beach or something like there's a certain temperament and a certain um, dedication that you share with people who've gone before you. And in terms of respecting their work and what how much it has enriched my life, how much their writing has enriched my life. Um, I think that's really important, yeah, and I do feel a great sense of kinship and sisterhood with them and with my fellow women writers at the moment, my fellow women writers, but you know, um, it is kind of corny to say sisters, but like, I, I do feel that sense of kinship as well with my own peers in writing. I think it's really important to be surrounded by um, women who are writing well, whether women who've written well in the past or are writing well at the moment and women who are writing well for the future. So I do feel that sense of continuity, yeah. Um, you're both called Cork writers. Um, and so Sarah, you were born in England and Darren, you were born in Galway mm -hmm. and you both kind of made your way here. Like, it, does that bring like in, anything with it, you know, being called Cork writers? Like, do you ever think, oh, this isn't Cork enough, you know, I have to Cork it up or something <laughs> like that? I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, is there anything like that that you think about? <laughs> um, yeah, funnily enough, in England, I'm an English writer. Oh. <laughs> um, depending on... Uh, but no, I, like, I feel... It's funny, in the last sort of couple of years, and so many people have left, and, uh, you know, one hears so much about the diaspora, and you're like, but I stayed here, I like it here. You know, some credit for me, please. And, you know, I do feel we sort of weathered the, the recession. And, um, and I, I, I mean, I definitely feel very... I'm, I'm, somewhat conflicted in identity because I I was born in the UK but I literally for for about four months we lived there um after I was born and so I've lived in I was raised in entirely in um in East Cork um and now I live in West Cork which is terribly unambitious but uh but I'm perfectly happy um but I don't think I I don't really feel that pressure I, I feel a very strong connection to rural Ireland more so than um, because I grew up in rural Ireland, because I've chosen to live in rural Ireland at a time in my life and mm. when it's when it's hard to, you know, where I live, there aren't a lot of people my age that, you know, that I know well. Uh, we live in the middle of nowhere and, um, and you know, and, and it's hard to sustain that that um, that lifestyle. Um, so I so I definitely feel that sort of connection to, to rural Ireland and, and writers who, who wrote about rural Ireland, perhaps more so than uh, um, 
you know, than, than Beckett and Joyce. I like sort of McGahern and Dermot Bolger and people like that. But I, it doesn't, you know, I, I think you write what, what, you, what you feel compelled to write and it mm. comes out, it will naturally come out in a cork way. My, my cork voice is not at all typical. Um, but it's still cork. It's it's a very different type of cork, but it's a it's a newer one. Um, and again, yeah. <laughs> I think, this, I think that makes a lot of sense. You know what Sarah said there, and it's something that throughout our friendship, really, we've spoken about, and we spoke about that first day as well. Um, the sense of how being an outsider fuels you in your work, and how important it is, in a way, to have that sense of being an outsider, outside looking in. Um, and how that's integral in a lot of ways to how we become writers, you know. Um, and so I suppose, yeah, like, I mean, I was born in Galway, but like all clear people are either born in Galway or Limerick or the side of the road, you know, we don't have, we don't have a maternity hospital. So it's not that much of a big deal that I was born in Galway. Um, I, I'm Claire, like I'm, I'm, oh my God, I'm Claire through and through, but I love Cork, I love living here. There's, there's probably nowhere else I'd choose to live now, you know, as an adult, Cork or Claire. But um, yeah, I do feel that sense of not being of a place, but loving a place can inspire you to write about it quite well. Um, like I really, I write a lot about Cork and I really, like I said, I really do feel it influences my work a lot, especially the history of Cork, the sense of living in the city. Um, I love it. I love it. And I think anything you love and you're passionate about will work its way into your writing, really, you know. So, yeah, I'm really glad to be living here. I think cho choice is an important thing, like mm. you say. You know, I think, a, you know, an English writer who chooses to come over and, and live and write in Ireland is more Irish than an Irish writer who chooses to live and write in New York, you know. Um, so, to me, choice, choice at, at a, a certain stage in life is important. We cut the mic. <laughs> Is it working? Yeah, half past eight. Is that better? No. Half past eight. We'll, we'll we throw it out to a QA so. <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, if anybody has any questions for uh, Duran or Sarah. I have a question for Duran. Uh, what, what advice would you give to somebody that's learning by the self taught method? What kind of things that you say do 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 or read oh yeah. my god just read because like like the books that you choose to read those writers are going to be your teachers okay. so whatever form you're drawn to your main job when you're beginning to write is finding what kind of writing you love and what makes you just go all shiver and go like oh my god this is amazing i have to tell everyone i know about this this is unreal and it sometimes takes a while to find that but when you find that it's like having a good ear for music you know um, once you find that music that you like, it'll feed your own work, it'll nurture you as a writer and it'll lead you to write about things that you love. So yeah, that's what I would say. Read so much until you find what you love and write as well. Like, I mean, write and write and write and write. It doesn't have to be something that you feel proud of. Mm -hmm. If you're just writing, you'll start to develop your own like voice. I don't I hate that phrase voice, but you know, like you'll start to develop your own style, who yes. you are as a person and who you are as a writer. So read and write. And can you just talk about your process? You were talking that you have a similar process. 
Right. That's the patchworky thing, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really a horrible process, and it? there's better <laughs> ways of doing horrible, it. But necessary, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't keep any particular hours. I don't hit any particular word counts. Sorry, I think that's we can't um, Yeah, no, I, just in terms of process, she was asking about process, and I was saying I don't have any particular word count, or, you know, I don't hit any particular goals. It's it's kind of, um, it is somewhat the muse. <laughs> so with the patchworking kind of thing that we were speaking about earlier with process, how that works for me is that... <coughs> I might get only tiny little bits of time to write. So I'd have an idea kind of percolating in my head. And if there are little snippets that come to me, I'll jot them down. And then when I get a smaller or a larger period of time to write, then I'll kind of stitch it all together. And that's kind of a process that was similar for Sarah when she was writing Spill Simmer. I don't know if it was similar Mm. with this one. No, it was kind of, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's not an easy way to write, but it's kind of, for me anyway, it's necessity, you know. Yeah, and for me it wasn't time. It was just, you know, when you sit down at a desk and stare at a blank screen, that's probably the hardest time Mm. to think of anything good, I Mm. find. Um, All the good things come to me elsewhere, and then I have to sort of stick them together afterwards. Um, Declan Hill is my name, um, Belfast Urban Studio, um, author, also publisher. I'd like to thank you for the past 45 minutes, your discussion, um, but I have a, a question for Sarah. Um, on page, on page 8, <laughs> right, a why is it only now that I can see how many ordinary things are actually grotesque. <laughs> Ex- explain. No, I I'm quite bl- a believer of if we just do ordinary things well in architecture. I'm an architect. If we do ordinary things well, well proportioned, we would do be doing good. So I repeat my quote your book. It's the second last sentence. On the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I can. Why see is it only really now? that I can see how many ordinary things are actually grotesque. grotesque. But this this isn't me making a declaration as a writer. This is a character. This is inside the character's mind. And the character sees the world as grotesques and sees... It's at the end of a passage about how um, going to church as a child and going to church as an adult and seeing all the things um, that she feels are wrong in it. it, it it's It's directly related to um, an incident in which uh, she's kind of criticising mass, basically the, the collection plate and the, the ceremony and the pomp and ceremony. And it's about how all of these things that she f- took for granted as a child and didn't question suddenly seem strange and wrong. Um, and, but it's also, it's, it's within the mind of the character. Um, and she's, she's sick and she's de- depressed and she's lost. And she, she sees the world as bleak in that way. Because I, I agree with you, I think. I think the, you know, no, but the, the, the ordinary things are so important, the, the small things, the details. Um, I totally agree, and that was my way of making, of showing that she was, that she was becoming despairing, becoming despondent, was taking away that, um, that comfort in the ordinary and making it seem grotesque. <laughs> One, one, one more question at the back. Yeah. So share this brilliant book called Iron, 
um, what what the word the question was what what does the word ire mean which is the title of my new book um should spreelesh not um ishkarota it's um ice like on the cover like the glacier although someone asked me if that was the skellix but um yeah no it's ire it's ice and there's a lot of poems about um water kind of shape shifting throughout and um i've been thinking a lot about climate change and that kind of thing as well so din shakil nor lane to an lower omlan um yeah tasul gun gnen shakil rena so garmil mahat agus garmil mahat so kesh karas gailan mar it's ana van rotation of course yeah yeah i'd say we'll be finishing up in a minute i'd love to sign it yeah. for you no problem I, I, was, i was just about to say one of the worst things about events like this is that you have to draw them to a close at times because we could go on listening here but i know there are people that want to get books signed and you know that takes a bit of time and whatever so um if it's okay with you guys we'll Thanks a million for listening. If you if you got the whole way through, if you were there in the night and re-listened, wow, that's really impressive. Uh, as I said, it was an honor to get to talk to these two guys, and I'd love to uh, chat to them again and again and again. I felt like I felt like I had a lot more that I could have asked Sarah in particular. Just coming off of reading um, a line made by walking, just an incredible book. Look out for it pick it up, read it, devour it and like fall in love with it like I have. Uh, yeah, so I enjoyed doing the public interview. It was good fun. And yes, of course, I did pick out at the Q&A, which only lasted a couple of minutes. As I said, I kind of went over my time because I wasn't sure how long I actually had. And so, you know, you're pointing at people and this was one of the parts that I was worried about doing a public Q&A for the first time. I was like, how, how do you know to you know, you at the back, you you there with the ugly face, you know, how, how do you get their attention? So, yeah, I, I picked out one guy who kind of, you know, he was one of those people whose my name is and this is my job and this is what I do. And, you know, it's kind of a question and a comment. And it was just kind of like, as soon as I asked, I was like, oh, can I tell him, actually, don't bother asking that, you know, we'll ask someone else. So that, that doesn't make it onto the podcast, thankfully. Uh, Yep. So thanks a million for listening. Tweet me at TPOE blog or message me at the point of everything. And hopefully you'll keep listening. You can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. And as I said, thanks a million again to Steve McAvoy for producing this because without him, who knows what we'd be listening to. It'd just be a load of noises. Me just banging cups on tables and sniffling and coughing and everything. So yeah, thanks a lot for listening, guys. 